Father, we thank you for your grace to us this evening, Lord. We thank you because you have become so, so real to us, such a wonderful reality in our lives. Father, that when people meet us, they are meeting two people. They're meeting you in us, and they're meeting us too. And Father, we just want to talk about you, and we want to commune with you. Father, we are so thrilled to have a wonderful Savior like Jesus. Father, we are so thrilled that he hasn't just left us with a code of ethics and a moral code, but he walks beside us. He talks with us. Oh, he's pleased to be with us too, Lord. Father, I thank you for your wonderful grace. Father, I pray tonight, Lord, that you will anoint us with the Holy Spirit in a way, Father, that we've never known before. Father, that indeed the words of life should pour from our lips. Praise your name. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> I think uh, the subject of grace before judgment has become one of my favorite subjects. Um, I have received so much grace myself, not only in this last week, but in the whole of my Christian life that it's a sheer delight to talk about the grace of God. Because grace can't be earned, well, immediately we're equal. And tonight I can stand before you and say, the grace of God is sufficient for any need in this particular meeting. And any one of us here tonight can say, the grace of God met me where I most needed it to meet me. The grace of God is so powerful and so alive and we have the privilege of representing the grace of God to everyone around. Judgment's coming, but now grace is manifest in each one of us. Praise the name of Jesus. And unfortunately, this is the last evening we're going to spend on the principle of grace before judgment. So to reduce it to a personal level, I've chosen, and I feel the Lord has led me to take this path, I've chosen to talk about three men who themselves didn't understand the principle of grace and certainly didn't apply it, and yet to whom God graciously revealed grace. Now, two of them go together, they're brothers, and Mark introduces them to us. Uh, turn, please, to Mark, chapter 3. And I think we'll begin at verse 14. Here they are. And he ordained twelve that should be with him, and that they might, he might send them forth to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses, to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, and here are the couple, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James. And he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Now here are these two men. James and John, the sons of thunder. Now, as a geographer, I happen to know what thunder is. I wonder whether you know what thunder is. It's very noisy, but actually it's caused when a spark of electricity goes through the air and the heat from that spark causes the air to expand and to rush out, outwards. As soon as the spark's gone, there's instantaneous cooling and there's a vacuum. And the air rushes into the vacuum. And as it rushes in, there's this bang and there's a rumble as it comes. So what is it? It's noise created by a lot of wind. 
praise God. And I think that summarizes the early life of James and John. They were very noisy, but it was all wind inside. I know Christians like that as well. God is leading us into a place of solidity. And it was Jesus that surnamed them the sons of thunder. Boanerges, the sons of thunder. Very noisy and full of wind. Let's have a look at the time. You remember, of course, it was James and John's mother who actually went to Jesus and said, Jesus, uh, I've got a favor to ask you. I want my two sons to have the highest seats in heaven. Is that all right? I'm booking it ready. <laughs> That's what she said. And whenever there was a, dis a dispute going on about who was going to be the greatest, always James and John were in there. Right? And they were the ones who uh, constantly were fighting for their position all the time. Now, there's a beautiful example um, in Scripture of where James and John, both of them, come together with Jesus, and they actually try with Jesus to show how great they're going to be. Now, let's have a look at it. Luke chapter 9 they try and take some of the authority from Jesus. Luke chapter 9 <clears throat> and well we begin the end of verse 48 and in this passage we see the fact that James and John never understood of the principle of grace before judgment. By the way these two they needed a lot of grace to get them through into Jesus presence themselves. It's a shame they didn't apply the same principle to other people. Uh, by the way, have a look just at the end of verse 48. Um, Jesus talks to them. Actually, verse 46. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. There they are. They're all talking about who's going to be greatest. And Jesus' answer is, at the end of verse 48, For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Verse 49. And John answered. Here's John. One of the sons of thunder. John answered and said, Master, you'll be glad to hear this, Master. We saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him, because he followed not with us. And this man was successfully casting out demons in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he was a believer. But John said, well, he's not one of us, so he can't do it. So I stopped him, Lord. Isn't that marvellous? That's denominationalism, by the way. This is one of the beginnings of denominationalism in the Bible. He didn't understand. God's grace is bigger than their band. It was bigger than that. It could extend to any believer. And here's John, I stopped him doing it, Lord. Isn't that marvellous? These people are getting free by this man's ministry. And John, so filled, really, with party spirit for his own self, he said, I stopped him, Lord. I didn't want him getting any of the glory. And Jesus has to teach him a lesson of grace. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. doesn't stop then. Let's go on. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Now the Samaritans hated anyone who worshipped in Jerusalem. They worshipped in their own mountain. And they didn't like the people who worshipped 
in Jerusalem. And here was Jesus. He set his face as flint. I'm going to Jerusalem. Okay, so Jesus isn't going to get a very good reception in Samaria. And they did not receive him, verse 53, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. Verse 54, here they are. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Is that graceful? Is that nice? It's not nice. It's James and John. Lots of noise. They couldn't do it. They didn't have the power within them to do it. Here they are. Lord, do you want us to command the fire down? Lord, we want to command the fire down. All right? So we're going to do it. And that's judgment before grace. He wasn't going to give them a chance. You see, these are young believers, of course. And he turned, this is Jesus, he turned and he rebuked them. He said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Hallelujah. There's grace. There's grace. I want to be fair on James and John. They didn't always remain like that. In fact, after Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit had come upon them in power, we had a new James and we had a new John. And James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was actually the first of the twelve to die, except for Judas Iscariot. The first apostle to die. And his brother John, as the Lord designed it, was the last to die. James was martyred for Jesus. What a privilege. What a privilege that man had to die for the Lord Jesus. And John had the equal privilege of living for the Lord Jesus. And before John died, the son of thunder, he'd written one of the most beautiful pieces of prose there ever has been. John's Gospel. Three sublime letters, epistles. What are they about? Love. No more fire on your brother. No more get him out and judge him. It was love pouring down. That was his message. He changed a bit. He was still a son of thunder, but a different one, because right at the end of the Bible, the thunderous voice of John booms out in the book of Revelation. And I always remember John, not as he is in the Gospels. I remember him as he is on his deathbed. At a man aged 100 who had seen the church already splitting up. Oh, that must have crushed John so much. And in Ephesus, he was there on his deathbed with all the brethren around him. An old man, his last act was to lift his hands to heaven to ask a blessing upon the church. And do you know what his last words were? I've got them written down so that I can quote them. His last words were these. Little children... Love one another, because such was the Lord's command, and if this only be done, it is enough. I'm going to read those again. Here's our son of thunder at the end of his life. He'd learned something, you know. Praise God. There is no replacement in the Christian life for experience. I don't believe that. I really don't. I believe the gifts of God can be given to anyone. But I believe the fruit of the Spirit come when your life has been dealt with by God. And here's John, a frail man. Look what he says to these Ephesian Christians around. Little children, love one another, because such was the Lord's command. And if this 
only be done. It is enough. It's so easy to say those words, isn't it? Isn't it easy to say it and think that you've got the meaning of them? I believe we need the meaning of them. All of us in the church as well, throughout the whole of the body of Christ, we need to know what that is. We need to be aware of what John was in his earlier days, this denominationalism, uh, not being blessed when other people are blessed. We can be blessed when Jesus is blessed. Hallelujah. That's real submission to the Spirit of God. When the church down the road has a tremendous revival. And what are we doing? Saying, oh, that's terrible. No. We're saying, praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because your face is being uplifted in that place. People are being saved and set free on every score. Oh, thank you, Lord. That's loving one another. That's when my brother is preferred above me. I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. That's when I'm trodden into the ground. I can say, thank you, Lord. For my brother, I'd do anything, Lord, because I'm doing it for you. That's love. That's not thunder. That's love. Hallelujah. Praise God. Now, there are two men didn't understand the grace of God, but they came through. And they began listening to the Holy Spirit as he taught them. And it was soon that their whole lives were dedicated to grace. But there's one man in the Old Testament, and I want to concentrate on him tonight. He's a prophet. Now, <clears throat> some people have got a mistaken idea about the prophets. They think they're prophets of doom. And many people don't understand them. They try and get their way through Habakkuk, and they don't understand much about it. Or Nahum seems to defeat them. And I've never understood why, really. Because to me, they're not prophets of doom, they're prophets of grace. They're prophets of grace. If God wanted to destroy Edom, he could have done it. He could have blotted them out without giving them any notice. He didn't do that. What did he do? He sent a wonderful believer, one of my favorite believers, called Obadiah. And Obadiah went into Edom and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to these people who hated God and hated him. What was God doing? God was warning them of the judgment to come, hoping that they'd repent. God could have destroyed Babylon. He didn't. Not until he'd sent Habakkuk in with a message, the message of grace, and God told them what was going to happen to them unless they repented. Now that's grace. That's not doom, that's grace. If God says to you, if you carry on the way you're doing, I will so and so and so and so, that's grace. Because he's given you a chance to repent. Jeremiah, for example. Now, Jeremiah, a wonderful believer. God sent him to Edom. He sent him to Moab. He sent him to the Arabians, to the Ammonites. He sent him to Babylon. And what was he preaching? Repent. God will have to destroy you soon, so you must repent. These were wonderful men of God. Every single prophet to me speaks of grace, not of judgment, nor of doom. Of grace primarily. God could have obliterated them and he didn't. He didn't. And do you know what these men had to suffer? These were wonderful believers. These were believers who dedicated their whole lives to the Lord. And they suffered persecution. They were reviled. They were scourged. They were imprisoned. They were maimed. They were tortured. And they were killed. Because God loved those nations that they went to so much. 
There was no pettiness about it. They didn't think of their own comfort. They went to get the message of God's love out to these nations. Have you read what Jeremiah went through? If you haven't, it's a wonderful Bible study. A terrible life that man had. And it is said that Isaiah himself was sawn in two by King Manasseh. A king that he preached the gospel to faithfully. This, this is what these men went through. And no wonder Hebrews says, men of whom the world is not worthy. Not worthy at all. But there's one prophet that sticks out like a sore thumb. And that's Jonah. <laughs> Praise God. Now God could have destroyed the Ninevites. He could have done it. He happened to choose to preach the gospel to them. And the man he chose was Jonah. Unfortunately, Jonah didn't want to go. And so could we turn to the book of Jonah and have a look at this wonderful prophet? <clears throat> and I'm going to concentrate now on the book of Jonah. <clears throat> and we're going to see how God gave him nothing but grace and he gave the Ninevites nothing but bitterness all the way through. And I'm not going to give any apology for the great fish swallowing Jonah. I'm not going to spend any time at all reading newspaper articles of other men that have been swallowed by great fish just to prove it. We know that God is the God of the impossible. I always remember the little story of a girl who was digging a hole in the sand in a beach somewhere. And she was digging away and this Christian walked past and said, excuse me, what are you doing? She said, I'm going to empty the sea into this hole. I'm going to empty the sea into this hole. And the man laughed. And then he suddenly stopped and he realized that's exactly what the Lord's done. The one who made the sea has been emptied into this hole. Praise God. God himself dwells in you. Not just the whole ocean. The one who made the ocean dwells in you. Praise God. Now we've got a God who does the impossible. Amen. Hallelujah. So I'm not going to give any apology for that. It happened. It's in the word of God. That's all I need to say on the matter. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians are reckoned to be the most vile and cruel nation the world has ever seen. And they still have not been surpassed. Again, I'm not going to tell you the vile things they did. It's enough to make one's hair stand on end. But Nineveh was a vast capital of a vast empire. It is described as having walls a hundred feet tall. They were white. Now that's five times the size of the walls in Chichester, upwards. You imagine the walls of Chichester five times up. They were the walls of Nineveh. They were so wide you could have two lanes of traffic going along the top. The whole city uh, was reckoned to have 1,500 towers and the wealth in it was so fantastic that even American economists would have trouble reckoning with the t in the terms that they had. It was probably the richest city there has ever been on earth. And the smell of it, the stink of that city, because it was full of idolatry, it was full of people who hated the Lord, had come up even to heaven. And they deserved. If I told you some of the things they did, you'd say they deserved to be smashed. And they did. 
But we're dealing with a wonderful principle, grace before judgment. And here God, instead of smashing them into the ground, which is what I would have done, by grace, he says, Jonah, I want you to preach. I want you to go to that city. I want you to tell them what's going to happen to them unless they repent. And verse 3, and verse 4 I'm going to take. But Jonah, and verse 4, but the Lord. And we've got a fight on now. There it is. But Jonah did this, but the Lord did this. And the struggle is on, because Jonah didn't want to go and preach to the Ninevites. In fact, he didn't want the Ninevites saved. For some reason, he was bitter towards the Ninevites. He loathed them and detested them. And the thought of them spending all eternity in heaven with him was too much. He couldn't stand the thought. He couldn't stand it. So what's the first thing he does? He says, Lord, you've called me to this. I'm going in the opposite direction. And here he is. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. Joppa is present-day Jaffa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. <clears throat> now, two things about Tarshish. First, it's in the opposite direction to Nineveh. Exactly the opposite direction. Secondly, it's the furthest place he could have gone in his day. To them, it was the edge of the world. You see, it's in Spain, Tarshish, on the Mediterranean seacoast. Now, beyond Spain, you've got what they call the Gates of Hercules, or the Straits of Gibraltar. And the Phoenicians believed that just beyond there, the sea fell off the world. They believed it fell off the edge of the world. So that was the end as far as they were concerned. So he's not only going in the opposite direction, he's going as far as he can go in the opposite direction. Actually, about uh, three, well, later than that, about uh, 700 years later, the Phoenicians actually discovered America. They landed near Baltimore, and they were thrilled at the discovery of America, and they came back, but it was at the time that the Romans were fighting, the Carthaginians, who were the Phoenicians. And so they were all killed, in case everyone should try and escape out to America. That is actually historical fact. However, at this time, they'd reached Tarshish and no further. And so Jonah is going directly against the will of the Lord. And he's out of fellowship. He's out of fellowship now with the Lord. Fine. And went down into the ship to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now we've got God's grace. God wants him to preach. God so loves Nineveh, he's going to get this man to preach. A legalistic believer would immediately say, well, God, you've chosen the wrong man. Not true. God's chosen the right man for the job. Or they'd say, Lord, smash him. Send the fire down, Lord. Destroy him. No. It's grace before judgment. Always grace before judgment. And the Lord doesn't do that. He sends a storm out. <clears throat> <clears throat> But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. There was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken, these wooden ships, and it was about to fall apart. It was so bad. Then the mariners were afraid. That was some storm. The Phoenician sailors themselves were afraid and cried, Every man unto his God. The whole pantheon was called upon. They were probably naming gods that they'd only heard of. They were calling on any God possible to stop this storm. Every single God they could think of, they were beseeching him to come along and calm the whole thing down. There they are. You can imagine this going on in the middle of the Mediterranean, a storm going on, and they're all wailing to their gods. 
and cast forth uh, there we are. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. And what was Jonah doing? Jonah should be saying, Lord, deliver these people. Lord, I've got to get the gospel out. I've got to make sure these people know of the grace of God. What was he doing? But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. And I think that's most Christians today. While the ship's breaking up round them, they are fast asleep. Now, I admire his faith at this point. I don't think I would have slept very much <laughs> on a ship like this. But nevertheless, you see, he couldn't care less about the people that he was with. He couldn't care less about Nineveh. All he wanted to do was go to sleep. There we are. And that summarizes the life of Jonah, funnily enough. He cared about him, his own self more than he cared about anyone else. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon, <coughs> call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And God revealed it was Jonah's fault for doing all this. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause is this evil upon us? For what is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy people? And of what people art thou? He said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. I worship him which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. These men were so gracious to Jonah. He explained why he had caused all this trouble. And they listened patiently while he explained it all. And he said, and I've been disobedient to the Lord, I'm out of fellowship with the Lord, and this is God's way of trying to bring me back into fellowship. And I'm not getting back into fellowship. And these men knew full well. Then said they unto him, what shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. He said unto them, take me up, cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. And what grace, here they are, unbelievers showing Jonah, a miserable, carnal, out of fellowship believer, grace. What did they do? Throw him overboard to save their own skins? They did not. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. Unbelievers sometimes show Christians up terribly. And this is a case in point. These Phoenicians rode very hard so that they wouldn't have to put Jonah overboard. Jonah was fussy. He couldn't care less about the Phoenicians. And these unbelievers cared more about him than he cared about them and about the Ninevites. Do you see, God's trying to speak grace to Jonah through these Phoenicians. He's trying to say, even these Phoenicians love you. How much more do I love the Ninevites? And you won't go to them. You refuse to go. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we perish. <coughs> let, sorry, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. 
And here's Romans 8.28. They were saved. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. Already Jonah has won converts. He's going to have many more by the time the day is finished. He's started making converts already. Praise God. God can use your life. That's grace. That is grace every step of the way. And now we come to a beautiful thing. What would I have done? In my natural man, I'd have said, right, Jonah deserved that. Let him sink to the bottom. No. God knew what Jonah's reaction was, and he prepared a big fish. It's not a whale, by the way. A whale's a mammal. And it's wrongly translated in Matthew's Gospel. It is not a whale. It's a big fish. And God had prepared this fish. A mobile submarine. That's what it was. It was God's submarine for the time. And Jonah was thrown overboard, and this big fish comes along and snaps him up. Why didn't God let Jonah just go? He's been disobedient. Let him go. Chuck him out. Finish with him. Because he happened to love Jonah. And not just love him. He loved him a lot. Praise his wonderful name. And this fish represents God's grace to Jonah. It represents more than that. God was giving Jonah a wonderful message as well. Because one of the things we know about the Ninevites is that they happened to worship a fish. It was their chief god. Hallelujah. The counsels of God are so miraculous and so wonderful. Talk about Romans 8.28. They worshipped a God called Dagon. D-A-G-O-N. Dagon. He was half man, he was half fish. And his name means little fish. Dagon translated means little fish. Now, God's not only saved Jonah, he's given him a message. Because as Jonah walks through Nineveh, every time he sees the temple dedicated to the little fish, he can stand there and say... You worship the little fish. But my God prepared a big fish which obeyed him. Therefore, my God is the God of gods. And he's God of your little fish God. You better turn to the Lord. Oh, hallelujah. That's grace upon grace. Didn't just save Jonah. It gives him a wonderful message. You see, he could have saved Jonah in many ways. But he happened to know that the Ninevites needed Jonah to be rescued by a fish. And there's wonderful pictures, of course, how this is the type of the Lord Jesus, but we don't have time to go into them. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Praise God for the fish's obedience. Hallelujah. (coughs) Now, chapter 2 is Jonah back in fellowship with the Lord. And remember, this is probably 40 fathoms down and going at several knots towards Nineveh. All right? Now, remember it. We're now deep down in the sea, and it's pretty dark in there. And Jonah starts praying to the Lord. He's come back to his right mind now. Okay, I give in. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And you'll notice, never once in this prayer does he say, Lord, deliver me. Never once. All he does, he praises God for his deliverance. He praises God for his deliverance. There is praise issuing up from 40 fathoms. And God in his grace hears 40 fathoms down. He's hearing. Isn't he wonderful? Hallelujah. Praise God. That's a major problem. How do you hear submarines that are 40 fathoms down? God can hear. And what is more, God can hear every word that's being said in their hearts. Hallelujah. You can be saved 40 fathoms down or 100 fathoms down. Because God happens to be God down there as well. 
and said, and here it is, I'm not saying much on it, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me out of the belly of hell, the grave, cried I, and thou hurts my voice. He's still inside, he's still in the dilemma. And he's saying, thank you, Lord, you've heard me. How did he know he'd heard him? Because he happened to know a bit about the Lord. He'd been taught well. And he knew that if he repented of his sin, he was back in fellowship. You heard my voice. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. And the glory of the Lord starts issuing forth out of this great fish. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Verse 3, by the way, that I've just read. Notice, for thou hadst cast me into the deep. Not the Phoenicians. You did it, Lord. You did it. He recognizes the hand of God in his life. And I believe that we've got to start doing that for everything in our lives. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Lord, you're in this. You've allowed this, Lord. Why? Show me, Lord. I want to get back into fellowship, Lord. Hallelujah. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again towards thy holy temple. I'm going to see your temple again, Lord. I'm going to get out of this. Praise you. Thank you, Lord. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped round my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was uh, about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. When his soul fainted within him, he remembered the Lord. Just like those men with water wings on who don't know how to swim and they struggle to keep themselves up and finally, when they can't go on, they lean back and they suddenly find the water wings can hold them up beautifully. Praise God. Sometimes God has to bring us to the end of ourselves to suddenly show us his tremendous provision. Hallelujah. And I went, uh, he says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. That's a Hebrew idiom. It says, those who kid themselves, those who kid themselves, forsake their own mercy. There is no place in the body of Christ for people who are kidding themselves because it's deception. And if you kid yourself, then you're out of fellowship with God. That's what it's saying. And he was kidding himself. He was thinking he could get away from the presence of God. It's not true. You cannot do it. We are here to serve the Lord. Are you kidding yourself? Are you kidding yourself that perhaps you could be happy doing something else? You're kidding yourself about that? You know? That, oh, if only I had this, or if only I had that, I'd be happy. You would not be happy. Because, as a Christian, you are designed to serve the Lord. And the only time you're going to be happy is when you're serving the Lord. And if you kid yourself on that, you forsake his mercy. Oh, hallelujah. And I feel sorry for people who are trying to live in both camps. I really feel sorry for them. Because they don't enjoy the world, and they don't enjoy the Lord. And so they're miserable. And the most miserable Christians are those who are trying to enjoy both. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. There's joy unspeakable, full of glory in that. Hallelujah. We'll be dancing with joy, serving the Lord. And here is Jonah. He's come to his right mind now. He said, Lord, I've stopped kidding myself. 
and I'm back in your mercy. Hallelujah. Don't kid yourself. Verse 9, and here's his sacrifice of praise, and but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And grace. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. You see, Jonah had to be back in fellowship before he could preach the gospel. You cannot serve the Lord out of fellowship. You cannot do it. And now he's back in fellowship. And God, in his grace, he gives them the call again. And now he's going to start going. Jonah is going to start moving. He doesn't want to, by the way. We'll come on to that later on. He still hates the Ninevites. He'd still prefer that they were destroyed and that they were going to go to hell because he hated them so much. He knew nothing about grace at all. But he's been told, he's learned his lesson, and he's off. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. It was 60 miles all the way around the outside, 20 miles across. Had a population, well we're told the population, just look quickly across, Jonah chapter 4 verse 11. Nineveh, the great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. There are 120,000 young babies in Nineveh. That's what it means. That's an idiom for babies. There are 120,000 babies there. Well, that's a population of over a million. Jonah is going to preach the gospel in three days to a million people. What a privilege. Hallelujah. Only Billy Graham, I think, nowadays, sometimes reaches that figure. Jonah was going to do it in three days. And he was going to walk right across the city in three days. He was going to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. Yes. Now, let's have a look. Uh, Verse 4. And Jonah began to enter into the city uh, a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. I bet he concentrated on that. I bet he preached nothing but judgment. I bet he enjoyed himself as well. You're all going to be smashed to pieces in forty days. He didn't tell them he was going to sit on the hillside so they wouldn't miss any of it. You're all going to be smashed to pieces in 40 days' time because the smell of you has gone up to God. I can't stand the smell of you. And he can't either, and he's going to destroy you. Hallelujah. Jonah's enjoying himself a bit now. Verse 5, and look at this. Oh, hallelujah. So the people of Nineveh believed God. The word believed there is amend God. They amend God. Hallelujah. It's the same one that uh, is used of Abraham when it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. They believed God. The whole city turned to the Lord. One million converts in three days. We saw Noah last week. He preached faithfully for 120 years, didn't get a convert. Here's Jonah, doesn't want to preach the gospel. He gets a million converts in three days. Hallelujah. Any reflection on Noah? Absolutely none. Any reflection on Jonah? Absolutely none. Who gets the glory? He does. The Lord. Praise his name. Hallelujah. You see, gifts are given. They tell you something about the giver, nothing about the receiver. 
The fruit of the Spirit is something different altogether. Hallelujah. I believe that. I really do. I think a gift can be given to me in a second of time. But I believe the fruit of the Spirit take years. I do. Personally, I believe that. Hallelujah. And they all repent and proclaim a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, Ashurdan III his name was. Here it is. And for word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd, that's cattle, nor flock, that's sheep, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink. I don't only want the people to stop eating and drinking, I want the animals to as well, says the king. This man was so determined to get right with God. This Assyrian king who had been vile had been cut to the quick when the message of God got through through Jonah's preaching. And he repented, and the whole land repented with him. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent? The word repent does not feel sorry. We've seen that before in 1 John 1, 9. It means to change his attitude about us. Who can tell if God will not change his attitude? At the moment he's going to smash us. Who can tell if he won't change his attitude to us and actually save us from the wrath that's coming and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? He says, who can tell? I think Jonah should have told them. But he obviously never did. He never told them, if you repent, God won't do it to you. He concentrated so hard on the other side because that's what he wanted to happen. And he didn't tell them that God happened to be a gracious God and that God had given him such grace just in the last few days. He'd ignored his rebellion. He'd saved him from a death in the Mediterranean Sea. He'd forgiven him. He'd empowered him by the Spirit to preach the gospel. Isn't he a wonderful, gracious God? Jonah didn't say that. Didn't mention it. He's going to destroy you. Jonah dis deserved to be destroyed. And here he is preaching destruction, not grace, to Nineveh. And they repented, every one of them. Praise God. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God changed his attitude of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Hallelujah. What a shame for Jonah. The book of Jonah doesn't end there. What a shame. Because then we would have a wonderful message. How this missionary didn't want to go, but finally he came to his right mind and then he did want to go. And he led a million people to the Lord. But unfortunately for Jonah, and very fortunately for us, God's got more to say about grace. And now we get the object lesson. And here's Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. Jonah is furious. He's led a million people to the Lord in three days, and he's mad. He's absolutely fuming at God. I just don't understand this man. He's angry. This man is so annoyed because one million Ninevites are going to spend eternity with him in heaven. He's angry. I think I'd have been angry if no one had turned to the Lord. He's very angry. 
Because now it means God won't destroy them. And he wanted God to destroy them. He wanted them to be obliterated. But God happens to be a gracious God. I'm so glad Jonah's not God. I wouldn't have lasted five minutes under Jonah's regime. I really wouldn't. Neither would Jonah, by the way. Neither would Jonah. Praise God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and, and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying? That means, didn't I say to myself? Didn't I say to myself that they'd repent? There we are. Didn't I say that if I started preaching the gospel, they'd all turn to the Lord? That's why I fled to Tarshish, he says, when I was yet in my country. Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. God, you're being unreasonable. You know that I didn't want them saved. <laughs> that's what he said that's what this says he didn't want them saved I said that to myself God that they'd all be saved if I started preaching the gospel to them and I'm furious about it you've deceived me God you've deceived me that's almost what he's saying oh terrible this man and he's out of fellowship again he's out of fellowship yet again therefore I fled before unto Tarshish for I knew what does he know I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. Jonah represents that more than anyone I know. God gave him grace and grace and grace and grace and more grace, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. That's what I know about you, Lord. Therefore now, O Lord, I take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I want to die, Lord. Go on, kill me, Lord. I'm so angry about this. I'm furious about it. I know that you were like that. That's why I didn't want to preach the gospel. That's what he's saying. This is Jonah, the book of Jonah. It's so badly represented, I think, the book of Jonah. It's always told to Sunday school classes. But you see, it's a great message. It's a wonderful message of God's grace, both to Jonah and to the Ninevites. Well, there we are. Go on, I want to die. And we as Christians, we always meet the Christian who finally says, I just want to die. And it's self-pity from the beginning to the end. It's abs Jonah is so full of himself that all he can say is, Lord, kill me off. He doesn't mean it for a second. But here is, he's so angry, he wants to die. He's angry to death. And the Lord asks, asks him a question. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? Which I would translate, is it right, Jonah, that you're angry? You, who I have given grace upon grace to, I have forgiven you your transgressions, I've shown you grace through the Phoenicians, I've prepared a fish years ago that would, was big enough to take you, to swallow you, I've allowed you to be vomited out on dry land, I've forgiven all of your iniquity, and you're furious because I've forgiven a million others of their iniquity. Is it right for you to be angry? And the answer is no. We're going to see exactly the same phrase. Uh, Jonah saying, kill me off. And God saying, is it right that you're angry? A little later on. Because now Jonah shows his inconsistency. And God prepares a wonderful message for Jonah. So the Lord said, are you right to be angry? And Jonah took that to mean, oh good Lord, you are going to destroy them after all. Lord, my anger's premature. You are going to destroy them. I'm sorry for being angry, Lord. So you are going to destroy them. And that's not what God meant. 
And what's he do? Verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city, sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. <laughs> it's there. I, honestly, I'm not twisting this at all. It's all there. Notice, he looks after his own comfort, first of all. He wants to sit in comfort. He wants to see the fire fall from heaven and destroy and obliterate that city so that he can rejoice. And he's going to have a grandstand view of it as well. He picked the best possible place to see it. But unfortunately, you know, in a desert climate, if you build a shack over yourself, it's hotter in that shack than without the shack because it absorbs the heat and it gets boiling hot. It's like being in your shed in summer. You know, it's very hot. And here's Jonah. Okay, he's not going to suffer from sunstroke because he's in the shade. But he's getting very hot in there. What would God do? If I were God in my natural, I would say, good. Let him steam up a bit. Let him get hot a bit. But God's got a lessening grace to show Jonah now. What's he do? The Lord prepared a good. A good. One good. That's all. It's actually a Palmer Christi plant. They, grew, they still grow in the Middle East, about 10 to 12 feet tall. And you know that if you sh sit under the shadow of uh, any type of tree, it's cooler, isn't it, than if you're in a building or a booth you've built for yourself. And so God in his grace says, Jonah, I don't want you being uncomfortable, sitting there watching what's going to happen to Nineveh. I want you comfortable. So God allowed a good, a Palmer Christie plant, to grow up to shelter, to shelter Jonah. That it might be a shadow over his head to deliver for him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the good. For the first time in the whole book, Jonah's happy about something. <laughs> he is so happy now. Do you know why? Because he's comfortable. He's all right now. You see, he's just lovely now. You know, thank you, Lord. He's so happy. He wasn't happy at all when a million people got saved. He was very angry. He wasn't happy a bit when uh, the Lord discovered he was on the ship running away from his presence. Oh, but he's happy now. One plant has made Jonah happy. Perhaps I'm painting a picture of you, you know. Am I? You know whether I am. Are you more concerned with the comforts that give you a bit of pleasure than you are with the fate of millions of people in this country and in the places you go to who are going to a lost eternity, an eternity without Christ, an eternity cut off from the love of God? Are you so preoccupied with the blessings that God gives you? Oh, he's given me a new this. Oh, God, thank you, you've given me this, you've given me that. Thank you, Lord. I'm comfortable now, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You've made me feel happy. Good, I'm feeling really happy today, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Are you more concerned with that than the job that you've got, which is to preach the gospel? Or are you more happy when you're preaching the gospel at your own discomfiture than when God supplies you with blessings galore for yourself? Of course he's going to bless you as an individual. But the, the point is motives. Are you more concerned with personal comfort than you are with getting out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to these people. Jonah was. One pot plant, almost, had made him happy. <laughs> Nothing else had made him happy at all. So here we are. Verse 7, but God prepared a worm. God has picked a worm. Now, do you know, 
there wasn't a pesticide available that could kill that worm off. There wasn't one ever designed to kill that worm. There wasn't a boot that could have ground it into the ground. Not one. The earliest bird would have missed it. No angler was going to get that worm for a bait. Do you know why? Because God had prepared him. Hallelujah. God had prepared that worm. He had a ministry for the worm to do. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, yes. And it's a super principle with us. If you're still alive, God's got a purpose for your life. Jonah was still alive. God still had a purpose for his life. If you're still alive, he's got a purpose for your life. And the worm had a purpose in its life. And it wasn't going to die. And it wasn't going to die, not at all, until God had finished his purpose. And it smote, look at this, but God prepared the worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gird that it withered. This little worm ate a ten-foot gird in one night. <laughs> And that's a miracle. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise God. The worm didn't do it in the natural. It was miraculous. Actually, of course, it probably ate it enough so that it would wither by itself. But do you know, God is a, a miracle God. Hallelujah. He really is. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, now his beloved good's been taken away now, that God prepared a vehement east wind, a boiling hot east wind, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah that he fainted, and wished in himself to die. Here it is. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. Lord, kill me off again. And what does the Lord say? Verse 9. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the God? He's angry. Again, he's furious. And God says, Is it right that you're angry? And do you see the lesson? Do you see the inconsistency here? Jonah is upset because God had destroyed one plant. But he's also upset because he didn't destroy a million people. He loved a good more than he loved a million people. He'd have been happy to see Nineveh ground into the, the floor. He'd have been happy to see fire come down and burn up the whole of a million people living in Nineveh. But he'd be happy if God spared one, one plant. And God's trying to say something to Jonah. Your heart is not filled with love. You've got your priorities wrong. You prefer one good that brings you a day's comfort than a million people in heaven bringing me comfort. You didn't plant that good. You didn't water it. You did nothing for it. You didn't prune it. You didn't deserve it. But I gave it to you. So, Jonah... Why are you angry? Because I want to give these million people in Nineveh some shadow. I want to give them some grace. I want to give them some love. Why are you angry, Jonah? What's the inconsistency in your life, Jonah? He's saying, you're furious on one count, and you're furious on exactly the opposite count. Now, Jonah, get right. That's what God's saying. And here's the grace of God. Grace always flows from love. Grace always flows from love. Jonah didn't love these people. And beloved, we've got to love one another. We are too quick, all Christians are too quick to judge one another instead of showing grace before judgment. And it's love that's needed, more love. Notice, I'll finish it off verse 10. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gird, for the which thou hast not laboured, neither madest it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. 
And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than sixscore thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Now the book abruptly ends at that point because God's got the message out. It's grace all the way along the line for Jonah. It's grace for the Ninevites and it's a lessening grace for Jonah. Now I want to get two lessons out of this. The first I've already said, grace and love go hand in hand. For us to be gracious we need love. We have to ask God to enlarge our hearts of love so that the people around us who are going to a lost eternity will be encompassed by the love that we've got for them, that we will be determined to preach the gospel and not to be happy when God starts revealing his judgment in this land, but be desperately concerned. That's the first. The next one. God prepared a fish, he prepared a gird, and he prepared a worm, and they fulfilled their ministry. God has prepared you to be an ambassador for Christ. My question, and I finish on this, is are you fulfilling your ministry? Is the Lord Jesus being revealed through what you say and through what you are? If he's not, is it because your heart perhaps isn't big enough for God? Hallelujah. Praise God.